Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. I'm your host, Vu Tran, and today you're listening to Line of Effort 2, The Great Game, stories promoting a better understanding of strategy and the geostrategic ideas that shape intelligence analysis. The term political warfare for many people of the post-Cold War generation is a foreign term. We grew up in a peace dividend world and then in a world at war with terror. To the extent that we have skill sets attuned to recognizing political warfare and a toolkit of tactics, techniques, and procedures to address and defeat it, those have largely atrophied or disappeared. Our guest today is Professor Kerry Krishanik, author of the book Political Warfare, Strategies for Combating China's Plan to Quote, Win Without Fighting. Professor Krishanik is a former U.S. Marine Corps officer with extensive experience studying political warfare over several decades. He has served as a strategic planner and spokesman for the Office of the Secretary of Defense and also as a senior fellow on the staff of the Pacific Forum, part of the Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank in Honolulu, Hawaii. Our conversation today will be split into two episodes. The first looks at the what of political warfare, as in what is it? And then episode two will look at the how, as in how is it conducted and how can we go about combating it? With that said, let's begin. Carrie, can you draw for us the distinction between political warfare and influence operations? I think in a Western perspective, or specifically in the American perspective, we we tend to confuse or conflate these terms because there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap, as you said. There's, in fact, a dizzying array of terminology that's associated with political warfare. Um, so to draw clear distinctions is not a good idea. It's you have to think of political warfare as combined arms, multi-domain warfare, just like we have combined arms, multi-domain uh, kinetic warfare. That's how the Chinese Communist Party fights political warfare. The array of terminology associated with it gets confusing. So we're going to parse out some of that terminology in our talk today. But in t- the simple answer to your question is, Political warfare is the employment of all means at a nation's command short of war to achieve its national objectives. Now, that's a simple enough definition. Uh, It goes back to a fellow named George Kennan, who came up with uh, America's Cold War strategy that defeated the Soviet Union. It's a very simple definition. It's everything short of large-scale kinetic warfare to defeat us. So when you ask me to draw a distinction between political warfare and, um, say, influence operations or psychological warfare or um, uh, irregular warfare or uh, coercive diplomacy, you can't. It's just like trying to separate on the kinetic warfare battlefield artillery, infantry, special operations, uh, close air support. You, you good commanders don't separate them. You use them all together. Now, this, the Chinese communist view of political warfare is the same. It's everything, but it, 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 to the Chinese Communist Party, political warfare is total war. It's what we call, and they call, unrestricted warfare. There are no rules. There are no restrictions. Everything is permitted. That differs from the democracy's view of political warfare, because we actually do have oversight. We're supposed to. It doesn't work all the time, but we have we have rules, we have restrictions. And the Chinese Communist Party, it's very Leninist. It means the ends justify the means. They can do anything 
kill, blackmail, coerce, uh, everything in the book uh, is available to them to win, to include biochemical warfare, drug warfare, fentanyl on our streets, and tropic warfare, which means destroying us economically. So our society breaks down and the morale of our country breaks down and it makes it easier for them to defeat us. So hopefully that gets you at least started with an understanding that the array of terminology regarding political warfare goes far beyond mere influence operations. There's a lot more to it and it, we really ought not to be saying, well, this is influence ops and this is political warfare. It's all uh, inextricably related. There's um, this term, the new Cold War, that's been getting kicked around to describe the current phase of U.S.-China relations. My take on it, based on your book and other research, is that China has been using political warfare against the U.S. and other nations since its founding. The partnership between the U.S. and China during the Cold War might have muted some of these activities, but post-dissolution of the Soviet Union, China has been using political warfare against the United States, you know, well before this new Cold War moniker was adopted. What's your take on that term? Is that an accurate description of what's going on? Or is there a specific quality about the, the political warfare aspect that's more total in how uh, we should be thinking about it versus using new Cold War as a way to frame our, our thinking on this? No, the old Cold War never ended. The West, America, uh, we were naive to think it did. Um, so the Berlin Wall comes down around 1989. The Soviet Union collapses in 1991. We defeated that communist threat. And we did it because we were pretty darn good at fighting political warfare. At that time, we had the institutions. We had the knowledge. We taught our people the terminology and how to actually fight competently on the information battlefields and political warfare battlefields. So we, we defeated the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Chinese Communist Party is massacring tens of thousands of its own people in Tiananmen Square. It's uh, rigidly communist, uh, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, all the, the worst elements of, of a pretty bad system of communism they, they religiously adhere to. So while the rest of the world is saying, uh, they're the democracies at least, they're saying, yeah, the, uh, the, the Cold War is over. The Chinese Communist Party is very closely studying what happened in Eastern Europe when they, um, that fell and what happened in the Soviet Union. They said that's never going to happen to the Chinese Communist Party uh, in China. We're going to do, take all the lessons learned from what the Russians did wrong from what Ceausescu did wrong and all the other, the, the people that they really admired in, in, in the brutally repressive uh, Warsaw Pact uh, that also collapsed at the same time as the Soviet Union. And we're gonna learn from that and we're gonna never allow that to happen to us. And they went on a charm offensive to let the world think that, oh yeah, we're, we're gonna be just like you, America. You know, send us all your money invest in us, give us all your technology, allow us to send our science, um, you know, our, our, our graduates from your best institutions, MIT, et cetera, to work at Los Alamos and work on your atomic bombs. And then we'll, we'll, we'll you know, let us in the door everywhere and we're gonna be just like you. And of course that was a massive deception operation. 
All they did was loot all our technology, copied all of our our military advances like the F-35, the C-17. Everything that they built is a is copied from what they stole from us. Uh, with their, you know, how they, when they infiltrated us academically, when they 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 got our trust, and then they built up uh, an incredibly powerful um, economically their country, which allowed them to build up a military that um, has a navy that's twice the size of ours right now, and will be three times uh, based on some projections by 2030. So the Cold War never ended, Fu. Um, For the Chinese Communist Party, they've always been at war with us. It's always been a protracted struggle, but they put a smiling face uh, as they, you know, on and and, uh, pretended to be our friends. Well, all the while, they were thinking, going back several thousand years in their psychology and thinking of ways where they were going to defeat us. Um, So if that answers your question, there is no new Cold War. Cold War never ended. And people have to understand that. We have to gear up and get ready to re-engage so we can do what we did in the first Cold War, and that's win it. Yeah, and I think that's that's a very there's a very deep point hidden in this, which is a lot of commentators, especially now, point the blame at Xi Jinping. But what you're saying is that this is systematic and it's going to go on. It was going on before Xi Jinping, and it'll probably go on when there's no Xi Jinping anymore. Is that a correct reading of what you're getting at? Xi Jinping has been stronger than his, uh, some of his predecessors. But if, even if, if you go back to when their deception operation began in the 1980s, uh, late 1970s and 80s, actually, uh, when, oh, we're your friend, we're your friend. Well, we're your friend, America as long as it takes us to get powerful enough to overthrow you. So the the whole point of what the CCP does with its political warfare, one of the most important things, it deceives us. It induces complacency in us. That is not new, as you pointed out. This is not a Xi Jinping initiative to deceive the West. This goes back in their thinking to, to, to the uh, era when they were at war all the time with each other, and uh, they learned all these these stratagems, and they learned how to, among other things, induce complacency in their enemy as they were seeking to overthrow and destroy that enemy. So again, nothing, not a lot new in terms of concepts and strategies, but what what is new, Vu, is that they have the technology now. They have a capability to surveil us, to dominate the airwaves, to uh, promulgate propaganda, disinformation, misinformation, and to, to buy our elites in what we call elite capture. They have a capability that's unprecedented in the history of the world. So they have capability now. They have longstanding psychology to do this and training to do this. And now they have a massive capability to to inflict this political warfare upon us and stand a pretty good chance of winning at this point. So when we say something like the Cold War, I think from the Western perspective, we really look at it mostly as like, what did the Soviet Union during do during this period? I think for us, it's very hard to come up with examples of PRC political warfare activities during the Cold War. Could you give us some examples just to give our audience a a historical context with which they can think through these problems? 
Well, the Chinese Communist Party got really good at uh, political warfare. They learned it from the Soviets. They, they started uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party in the early 1920s. And they, they took what the Communist International, or for short, the Common Turn, taught them. And they incorporated their own history, which they were pretty good at this anyway. And then they overthrew the, the uh, militarily massively dominant over them, uh, Guamantong, the uh, the KMT, the Nationalist Party, uh, by 1949, uh, they had defeated the KMT and taken over China. So they learned a lot through political warfare, uh, through their political warfare operations that caused a lot of the uh, nationalist forces to defect to the communists. They won them over again, elite capture, demoralize, divide. Uh, and then in their turn, disintegrate their enemies. They perfected that against the KMT, the nationalist forces. And that's why we had the People's Republic of China established in 1949 when the remainder of uh, the nationalist forces escaped to Taiwan, where they, they still resist today. So in terms of the, the Cold War continuing from the, the, the People's Republic of China through, through political warfare, then you take the 1949 victory, they immediately occupy a lot of other places like Tibet, Mongolia. Uh, they start taking places that were never really historically China, although they, through their political warfare, they try to convince the world that, oh yeah, this was historically China, so we're entitled to conquer it. And uh, with, with all that's implied in that in terms of the atrocities, the genocide, uh, in East Turkestan and, and all these other locations, they just took it. And that's political warfare that they're bringing forward to today in areas like this, the uh, the West Philippine Sea, uh, some of what is the, what a lot of people call the South China Sea. They claim all of that. And with all the incredible resources there, they, they claim that major artery going through to Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia and all the natural resources, fish, oil, etc. They claim it is theirs through propaganda only. They have no basis, as uh, the Hague tri uh, Arbitral uh, ruling uh, said in, in 2016, there is no basis for China to claim the South China Sea, but they just do it and they, prop through propaganda, make that claim over and over again to try to get people in the region to just accept that they own it. So the, the political warfare has continued since their victory in 1949 to take over China, and it, it's now on a very global basis. Why did it take so long for them to get this powerful? Well, they had the Cultural Revolution. For your analysts who are listening and your, your intelligence specialists, so you, if you have not studied this era in Chinese history, Study what you know. How many people died in the Cultural Revolution? How many? Uh, how many people? Twenty million. You know, there's different um, different estimates as to how many died. But a historian named Dick Dorr says there's at least twenty million died during the Great Leap Forward, and at least two uh, to three million were killed uh, during the, the Cultural Revolution. The country was in total upheaval, and so during that part of the Cold War, from about 1967 to 1977. Uh, China was largely focused on, on killing other Chinese internally. There were major artillery battles, major uh, armies were clashing within 
uh, communist China to, to see who was going to have power uh, at the end of this cultural revolution. And once they got done with their major civil war, which is really what it was from 1967 to 77, then they got back on their feet again and started exporting once again their political warfare regionally. And now that they have the technology, now that they have the wealth, now that they have the sophistication, they're doing a really good job globally of exporting their political warfare and influencing people in Europe, the global south, um, Africa, South America, different countries. They've made massive inroads because they've taken a pretty good system of Chinese communist political warfare and they've really brought it to new heights with their wealth and their technology and their sophistication of of operatives who've been trained in the best American universities and then come back to China and figure out how to defeat us based on their maybe eight, 10 years studying in the United States. It's important to remember too, Vu, that during this era, starting in 1950, when um, after communist China invades Tibet, invades Mongolia and starts taking you know, the, the water in the Himalayas, when you take Tibet, you've taken the ice-capped uh, Himalayan mountains and you control the rivers down, you know, going throughout Asia. Um, so they, they took that right away. But then they start in a, an agreement with the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin agree that the Soviet Union will export communist revolution through most of the world and China will focus on Asia. So in Asia, primarily, uh, later on, they expand outside of Asia. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is funding revolutions in countries like Malaysia, in countries like Thailand. The, the People's Liberation Army of Thailand uh, that fought against the, the Thai government for about 20 years to overthrow it, that, the headquarters of that was in Yunnan province in, in China. Uh, the weapons, training, everything the Chinese Communist Party gave them. The, uh, the New People's Army, which still exists in the Philippines, that was Chinese Communist funding and uh, equipment. And uh, even today, there's party-to-party -party, uh, relationship between the NPA and the Chinese Communist Party. So throughout Asia, Communist China is igniting revolutionary wars and insurrections, insurgencies, and equipping the, uh, the people involved in that. Even today in Myanmar, there, there are a number of proxy armies that are very close to the CCP. In fact, one, the United Wah State Army, um, is basically part of communist China. But it's the best armed, best equipped, and uh, best trained non-government military force in Asia, at least, and arguably within the world. And it's all because communist China is 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 backing the, this proxy army. At the end of 1989 or so, communist China claims it stops supporting these insurrections, but that's not really true. You look at Nepal, which the Maoists took over in a very bloody uh, revolution there. In effect, uh, they, you know, a lot of people got killed in that. Um, and you look at um, other places in South America where Maoists, who were supported by Communist China, um, the Shining Path, and others in South America, um, and in Africa as well, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was influencing and supporting 
those revolutionary armies in, in their very bloody attempts to overthrow their governments. It, it's almost like we repeat the same mistake over and over again, where we call victory too soon, and then we we take our eyes off the off the ball. Whether it's the Cold War or you know the Iraq War, and forgetting there was an insurgency brewing. The yeah, yeah I, I won't go too far down that analogy, other than to say that everyone wanted the peace dividend. That was bipartisan. Everyone at the, when the Berlin Wall fell again, June 1989, 1991, 50 years of the Cold War is coming to a very rapid end. And all the, uh, the politicians, not all of them, but a lot of them are saying, well, think of all the money we can save that we're pumping into defense right now. Um, and and then the, the term on everyone's lips at the time was peace dividend, peace dividend. And we are, um, we're so enamored with the outcome of what we think is the victory in the Cold War that you're right. We uh, we very consciously uh, avoided looking too closely at communist China uh, because at that time there was some reason to hope, based on the Soviet Union model, that China would in fact. Uh, there were people in China at that time. They. Uh, who were actually trying to democratize the People's Republic of China, uh, they don't exist anymore. You, you, you don't survive in communist China today if you, you actually believe that. Um, but back then there was some hope that uh, based on the Soviet Union model where we, uh, we eventually outshined them, uh, the, the, the capitalist Western model was much more appealing to the people of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And eventually that, that caused the breakdown of their government. And uh, at least for a short period of time in Russia, not very long, some sort of attempt at democratization. There was hope that China would turn out that way. And so there was a, a willingness to turn a blind eye, which they never, no one ever should have done on Tiananmen Square massacre. They, they weren't held accountable and we didn't watch them as closely as we should have. So that's a very good point, Boo, that... Uh, from 1989 on, uh, the world should have been completely convinced that the Chinese Communist Party had to be changed because of the Tiananmen Square massacre. They were going to hold on to power no matter what it took, no matter how many dead Chinese it took or, or dead people around the world. The Chinese Communist Party was totally committed to maintaining power and not to improving really the, the quality of life and the political uh, environment for the Chinese people. And then I, before we move on to unrestricted warfare, I did want to make one more observation for our audience, which is on the example you gave about the United Wall State in Burma slash Myanmar, and then the um, the junta government there too. Uh, they're both supported by China, right? So in essence, China is supporting both sides of that that conflict, even though I mean there are other sides, but. That they have multiple horses in that race. There, there's a number of uh, proxy armies uh, that Chinese Communist Party supports. Uh, the United Wa State Army, of course, being the largest, but there's the Shan State Army and um, the Tang National Liberation Army and then and the Arakan Army. There, there's a number of ethnic armies that have been fighting there. Now, what's changed in uh, recent months in Myanmar is that the PRC has turned against the, the junta that uh, took power and has been brutally repressing the people of Myanmar. Uh, there, there was an organized 
crime as is somewhat complex and beyond the scope of, of this discussion, but the PRC initially helped set up what we call crime cities in Myanmar, um, which they were happy to do. The uh, United Front Work Department, UFWD, and their, uh, their other organizations, Ministry of State Security, were involved in setting up these these what basically were just crime cities, cities run by organized crime cartels within Myanmar. On, then they supported that until uh, they started getting pushback on Weibo and other, you know, within China, that a lot of Chinese citizens were being scammed by people online uh, and, con, you know, con artists online out of these crime cities um, to, and they lost all their savings. They got, they, they got ripped off for uh, all their money. And as as bad, um, the people running the crime cities were basically kidnapping people to be workers in these these uh, online um, scam organizations. They they were tricking them into coming in, and in some cases, literally kidnapping them to bring them in as slave laborers, uh, going online and and working for months in some cases to win over someone online and get them to trust them enough to give them bank accounts. And so when the when Beijing told Myanmar's junta make those crime cities go away, make them stop because uh, we got to protect the Chinese people, uh, the junta ignored them, and that was you know the, the result of that wasn't really good for the junta because now China is much even more close to all these ethnic armies. And uh, helping them, you know, there was a major offensive at the beginning of uh, last month, October, where they just hammered uh, the Tatama, uh, the, uh, the Myanmar's army, uh, in ways that they hadn't been hammered uh, all in one day uh, for, for a long time. So the situation, one way or the other, doesn't matter how it comes out, uh, Myanmar is basically going to be a vassal state of the People's Republic of China at the end of this, regardless of whether the junta stays in power or whether the uh, the, the ethnic armies like Hua and uh, the Tang National Liberation Army and the Arakan Army and all that take over, basically China is going to be running it as a vassal state. This is all warfare, incidentally. I think the, the main point there is just the, I guess the brutal pragmatism that kind of underlies China's political warfare strategy. It's not, um, they're very flexible and they'll switch as long as they see a, a strategic advantage to it. Sure, sure. Whoever is going to support the uh, Chinese Communist Party's objectives, they're going to back them. And there's, again, it, it, it's unrestricted warfare. It's it's total war. And that means there's, there, there's no one giving oversight other than did we win or did we lose? And we don't care how you did it. To do this, they're employing all the standard strategies. Vu, they're they're employing United Fronts. They're employing the three warfares that you know your audience says of all the strategic psychological warfare and then that, those type of activities. But then they may not be as familiar with the media warfare, uh, media manipulation, uh, public opinion warfare is another name for it that um, that the Chinese Communist Party employs. They're good at it. Americans don't know much about it. They don't understand what they're seeing in the media and how much of that is driven by the Chinese Communist Party propaganda platforms and their media warfare. They're very good at legal warfare, the other major pillar of the three warfares. Uh, America, until recently, 
had zero organizations in the U.S. government trying to compete on the legal warfare, the lawfare battlefield. Only recently, recently as the Pacific Command uh, and NATO uh, set up very small organizations to deal with what the the Chinese Communist Party has tens of thousands of people working on. Uh, We finally have, have set up very small organizations to go and try to fight confidently on the lawfare battlefield. So China's hammering us with, with again, United Fronts of Three Warfares. They're active measures that we talked about. Proxy armies are active measures. They, they use coercion. They use assassination. They buy a lot of folks. Okay, we understand that. What you were seeing in the Philippines, in the West Philippines, see, that's hybrid and gray zone operations. That's all part of political warfare, too other covert uh, operations. And then the digital colonization with Huawei going in and taking over the transmission lines, taking over, uh, providing all the equipment inside many countries in Africa, in Europe, in uh, Asia, in South America. Um, That's basically digital colonization. The Pacific Islands especially are getting hard hit with that. And everyone's getting hit by their cyber warfare and, and online terror related to that. And, and then we see the military intimidation in the off of Taiwan. It's just it's massive. It's 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 geometrically increased in the in the past year or so, uh, well beyond what it has been since they were shooting at each other last in the in the, the late 1950s. It's this incredible amount of aviation incursions, circumnavigation by ships and aircraft. Um, aircraft carriers on the east side of Taiwan. Japan gets the same thing in the Senkakus, in the Nansei Shoto area. Republic of Korea, again, is intimidated this way. Australia is threatened with nuclear uh, a nuclear attack, as is Japan, if they don't do what China wants. So there's, there's many, many ways that the CCP is, is, is fighting us on the political warfare battlefield. And Vu, a lot of Americans don't recognize 90% of it to 100% of it. So I had asked Mark this question, but I, I think it's important enough to, to ask you too, which is, you know, from your perspective, the three warfares and unrestricted warfares, what, what's the difference between the two? So Mark, you know, his answer was the three warfares was unrestricted warfare on steroids. Is that, do you have a similar view on that or? You, you again, if we don't look at this holistically, we're going to screw ourselves into the ground. And what I mean by look at this, when you look at kinetic warfare, um, you think infantry, armor, artillery, aviation, special operations, amphibious forces, naval forces, cyber forces, space ops, etc. Right? You think holistically. That, that's what good intelligence analysts they understand this. Uh, good intelligence officers, warrant officers are out there. You, they understand what combined arms is in the kinetic warfare battlefield. So what we have to think about, we shouldn't be parsing them out and trying to say, well, you know, this part of political warfare is, is standalone and we'll only focus on this. You have to focus on the three warfares. And then you have to understand that the three warfares was merely a construct that the PLA um made official in around 2003 but unrestricted warfare is really what they're conducting across the board and um, and that goes beyond the the three warfares that we talked about strategic psychological operations media warfare and lawfare it goes into 
uh, space warfare, guerrilla warfare, terrorist warfare, brain warfare is a big issue if you, for those of you who are uh, on, on, on your intelligence staffs who are, are researching uh, the PRC's cognitive warfare, brain warfare. All of these warfares, the two PLA political warfare officers, incidentally, that was their, their trade. They were political warfare officers who who wrote the book Unrestricted Warfare, they're conducting all these warfares against us on a daily basis. Economic warfare, diplomatic warfare, the, the, the so-called wolf warrior diplomats, that's that's part of it. Hostage warfare, you could add to that as well. Remember in the book, for uh, your analysts, if you haven't at least read a summary of the Unrestricted Warfare book, uh, read at least that. But at the end, they, uh, those two PLA Air Force colonels say, We've given you like, you know, 24 or so unrestricted warfares, but the, the way we fight and defeat America is, is totally unlimited. There's an unlimited number of unrestricted warfares we can wage against America to destroy it. And so you can add in, uh, again, they, they put in drug warfare. Well, that's what the fentanyl on our streets is about. We're losing 100,000 Americans uh, a year to drug warfare on our streets. And the, the PRC could cut it off tomorrow if if uh, Beijing wanted to. It does not want to because a lot of the Americans getting killed are military-aged young men and women. And uh, so they, they've depleted our recruiting pool significantly by killing them uh, on the streets uh, with fentanyl. So there's, there's, many, there's many warfares they're fighting against us right now that that are within the three warfares, boo. They're within the unrestricted warfares, which are not identified as part of the three warfares. So what we have to do, good intelligence analysts, good intelligence warrant officers and commissioned officers need to think of political warfare on a combined arms uh, level. So think across the spectrum, United Front, media warfare, psychological warfare, legal warfare, active measures, gray zone ops, hybrid ops, and then all the unrestricted warfares. Think of this holistically, and then we can fight it. Because if you only fight one part of it, if you're only looking at the PSYOP side, you're missing, you're getting enveloped, you're getting flanked by everything else that they're doing. Um, maybe a unit can only handle part of it, but as, uh, uh, maybe you have psychological warfare units and you have public affairs combined with other information warfare ops that fight the media warfare battle. But, you, okay, I got that. Small units have to take on small parts of the big picture. But what I'm asking your analysts to do uh, is begin looking at this war that we're in holistically start thinking uh, of what we're, what is going on what they're they're doing to destroy us as combined arms multi-domain warfare and then it makes it easier to track it you can detect it you can deter it you can counter it and you can defeat it if you you know you once you learn how to recognize what's going on it makes it a lot easier to detect counter and defeat it Yes, exactly. I think the important part to end that insight would be understanding which agency to pass that information off to, almost like a tipping cue. Um, but you know, this is a more abstract view of how targeting would be done. 
but that tipping queue aspect where intelligence identifies and then passes it off to the right asset or in this case interagency to actually action that issue i think that's also very mm-hmm. important for the analyst to understand and and building that the 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 analyst of today is the the officer of tomorrow and maybe the elected official you know, next week okay so the reason I bring this point up is we do not have in the United States of America today the infrastructure. We have not built the organizations that can effectively fight this war. During the Cold War, and we'll just call it that, from, from uh, the end of World War II to about 1991, we had the U.S. Information Agency. That organization did a phenomenal job leading the political warfare fight. It was a center point for most of the political warfare. It it organized State Department. We actually had competent State Department officers engaged in that fight. We had competent military officers um, and organizations engaged in that fight. Department of Commerce, Department of Education, everyone was engaged. We had the interagency coordinated through USIA and through the National Security Council. That structure has really, that went away around 1991 for the same reasons we talked about earlier. But, oh, we won, you know, we, Cold War is over. We, let, let's look for the peace dividend. So we, um, for a number of reasons, we disestablished, uh, the United States disestablished, put it that way, the US Information Agency, nothing replaced it. State Department has done uh, a very bad job, actually, in trying to conduct political warfare. They won't even use the term. Um, and and I, I, that's, to me, an egregious uh, mistake is to not even uh, be willing to call the war that's being waged against you by its right name. Because you cannot, if you can't understand, if you cannot define how you're being attacked, you have zero chance of, of, of winning that fight. So we we need to rebuild the capabilities in our country. And so I would I would I would task your your analysts, your warrant officers, and your officers who are listening to this, try to think of ways that we can fight this more holistically, that we can get the word out, and make you know, make people better understand across your civilian workforce, uh, within the Department of the Army, within DOD. Uh, within your active duty force, understand that we're fighting a kinetic war and we're fighting a political war. We may never get to kinetic war uh, warfare because we'll lose. We'll surrender without a shot being fired because the Chinese Communist Party beat us on the political warfare battlefield. That's a very serious threat and that's a very real possibility. This concludes part one of our episode discussing political warfare. Join us next time for part two as we continue our conversation with Professor Gershanik. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, or the Army Foundry platform. In the show notes for today's episode, you're going to find the transcript, a list of news articles, government reports, and academic works that offer a more detailed look at some of the examples Professor Krushanik brought up during our interview. And lastly, there's a link to Professor Krushanik's book, which forms the basis of our interview today, as well as links for additional reports that go deeper into examples of political warfare by the People's Liberation Army and the People's Republic of China. If you have questions, comments, and most importantly, suggestions for topics we should cover in future episodes, drop us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. 
Until next time, I am your host, Boo Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.